the one particular aspect really potent and um, I guess in a way an initial part of our practice although not initial in the sense that we do it and then we're done but something to come back to a kind of a foundational part of meditation practice and more generally just living a good life kind of practice is um, cultivating this parental attitude about the mind and being willing to take responsibility for what the mind is noticing not so much to take responsibility for that but how we're relating to what we're noticing that there are different wholesome unwholesome ways of relating and uh, like a parent would be attentive to their child you know no don't don't play with the electrical socket that's not you know an appropriate toy or yeah go here this is a good place for you to play or to look or to touch it's exactly the same with our mind now it's easy you know we hear stories we read things about Buddhist meditation just our own sense of things you know of course it'd be really nice not to have to be shepherding our mind around to have a kind of wisdom way of being in the world where anything goes that we could be in any situation or any particular thought could arise and we'd be able to skillfully relate to it but we know that that's often not the case for us if a particular memory comes up or if we see a particular object or have a particular experience a lot of greed or a lot of aversion can get provoked or evoked and uh, if that happens then we can go down a road a proliferation of thinking and get all twisted all entangled in that I mean even if we just took a minute now <clears throat> you know and you could just sort of scan through your mind how many of those particular things topics objects are entangling for you you know whether it's a particular relationship you're in or used to be in that if you bring it to mind like if that becomes your object in your meditation or in your daily life your mind's tendency is to react in a way that sets in motion a stream of one thought after another that's entangling that involves some stressful emotions afflictive emotions that tend to build or layer on one layer on another think about the future for some of us just thinking about the future is entangling in that way or just you know like if we have a chronic problem in our knee we think about that and then all of a sudden it's so easy to think well why me why does my knee this way and then we can start becoming aversive of all the people we imagine who are still can sit comfortably and before we know it we have this whole concoction in our mind so there is a part of practice that um, is being a good steward for the mind really caring for the mind it's a wonderful discourse talk that the Buddha gave he outlines this as a foundational practice there was a, a particular ascetic a lay per, or a, not a, a monk in the Buddhist tradition um, who came to see the Buddha 
and asked the Buddha, you know, he told the Buddha that he often likes to visit various ascetics, practitioners, spiritual seekers, and to ask them questions about what is the fruit of your, of your life as a spiritual seeker. So, I'd like to ask you that question. So he asked the Buddha that. Now, in the experience of what reward does the venerable Gotama dwell? Gotama was his family name. So what is the reward of your practice? And this is what the Buddha said. The Tathagata, that's the word the Buddha used to refer to himself, the one thus gone, or the one uh, not encumbered with craving or clinging, the one thus gone, free of craving, dwells experiencing the reward of the fruits of clear knowing and release. So it's an interesting answer. So this is the ultimate, like this is the reward that we can expect too if we undertake the training the Buddha and other wise women and men suggest, you know, developing mindfulness. We can also say to our friends when they ask, under what reward, you know, do you dwell? We can say, we dwell in the reward of clear seeing and release. So what that means, I think a good translation or a restatement of that is, clear seeing means that uh, we have this capacity to be open and sensitive to the way things are. Kind of an unencumbered knowing, seeing sensitivity in our mind-body experience. So we don't have to, we're not dependent on denial or distraction or on avoiding certain situations like not going home to be with our parents because we can't deal with that. So there's clear knowing sensitivity that can go everywhere, know anything, and release. So no matter the particular experience we're sensitive to, the heart, the mind, is released of grasping, released or free from clinging, from grasping, from confusion. So that, that sounds appealing to me. <laughs> I wouldn't mind the capacity of being fully awake or alert or open or sensitive, no matter the particular condition, and also released. A heart, you know, another uh, discourse the Buddha calls this, the unshakable release of the heart, a heart that can't be triggered anymore. That would be great, to be able to be there, intimate, in the moment, connecting with whatever's going on. So if we happen to be dying in that moment, we're really there. We don't have to be in denial. We don't need to be tight because we're dying. We can be there. Or if somebody we love is dying, or if something really wonderful is happening, we don't get tight the heart remains released in all situations. And this particular person was very persistent, so he said, but what are the qualities that when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of clear knowing and release? <clears throat> and this is a basic mechanism of understanding in the way the Buddha worked, like, you know, he was always happy to respond to questions that were framed in light of cause and effect. So, the, so, so you have this experience, you know, Buddha, of being able to be clearly knowing and released. So what did you do that allowed for this to arise? And the Buddha answers uh, the seven factors of awakening. 
which is in Buddhism, that's just code for a beautiful balance of mind. The seven factors or the seven qualities of an awakened mind are three energizing and three calming qualities of mind that when in balance with mindfulness make insight unavoidable. Insight into what? Insight into clear knowing and release. Like the possibility of being radically present, intimate with conditions and released, the heart-mind released at the same time. That's what we have insight into. So what's in the way of that insight? How come we don't have that perfect sensitivity, clear seeing and release? Because our mind isn't perfectly in balance. When it's in balance, then that insight begins to arise. Not necessarily all at once, of course, but little glimpses and the result of those glimpses is a heart-mind that's more awake, more clear seen, and more released. So we just need to work on the balance. And the guy, like I said, is persistent, so he says, and what are the qualities that lead to the culmination of the seven factors of awakening? Investigation, energy, joy, these are the energizing, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, these are the calming side of the balance and mindfulness is the is the part of the mind that understands whether it's got too many of the energizing or too many of the calming whether it's in balance or not so those are the seven factors so he asks well what leads to that wonderful balance of mind with a and mind is energetically balanced supporting mindfulness in order to have insight into release to clear scene and release. And the Buddha answers the four foundations of mindfulness. Basically, that's code for developing a continuity of mindfulness of the body and mind. So in every moment, there is this body-mind experience. And our job is to cultivate an ongoing interest but we can't, we have to be interested in it in a non-charged way. This is the mindful, this is what mindfulness means. It's a non-interfering, a non-judging awareness of the body and the mind. And the mind includes things like the feeling, like the pleasantness or unpleasantness, the different mental qualities of like, is the mind colored by greed or is the mind colored by fear or aversion? And also noticing the skillfulness of the mind. Is my mind relating skillfully? Is my mind relating unskillfully? So these are all the different ways the Buddha teases out what he means by the four foundations of mindfulness, of mind, or of body and mind. And so the person asks, well, what are the qualities that lead to the culmination of the four foundations of mindfulness? And the Buddha answers, the three courses of right conduct. So it's another really important system. But the Buddha, you now you were moving into sort of more kind of foundational practices. I mean, ideally, you know, we just have insight into clear seeing and release, clear knowing and release, and our problems would be over. Because that, by definition, it means that in any particular situation, the heart-mind is capable of being fully present, intimate, sensitive, seeing clearly, 
and released of any suffering, any resistance, any heaviness. But we just have to kind of understand, well, what leads to that? So from the four foundations, what leads to that continuity of mindfulness of the body and mind is learning how to put aside the three unwholesome roots of mind and develop the three wholesome roots. And now we're getting closer to what I was talking about in terms of guarding the mind. Understanding, like in Buddhism, they even use the word poisons, the three poisons, the three wholesome roots. So you could probably guess what the three poisons are, or if you don't get it exactly right, you're kind of, this is like common sense. Fear and aversion is one of the unwholesome roots or poisons. Greediness or craving is one of the unwholesome roots or poisons. And delusion, not seeing things clearly. These are the three basic manifestations of ignorance in a Buddhist system. And then the wholesome roots are just the opposite. So the three courses of right conduct, it really comes out of that understanding of what's skillful and unskillful in the mind. And the conduct is just refers to uh, thought, speech, and action. So it's, it's our volition, our intentions, the intention to think, speak, and act. Is it coming out of an unwholesome root, greed, aversion, confusion, or is it coming out of a wholesome root? And so this is where that parental energy comes in. Now, at the end of the path, it's not useful to be parental. So if I'm at the stage of practice where my mind is in this perfect balance, I've got the three energizing factors all nicely in place, investigation, energy, joys in the mind. I've got the three tranquilizing factors. I've got nice tranquility going. I've got that one-pointedness or concentration in the mind. I've got equanimity, that impartiality. Mindfulness is just sitting supported by these three energizing, three tranquilizing factors. That's not the time to feel parental. Oh, I've got I've to guard the mind, make sure that greed doesn't come in. It's like too dense of a practice for that subtle balance. Because the mind is well beyond greed and aversion at that point. Or if it does arise, the balance of mind won't be confused by it. But when we're kind of in our more ordinary state of mind, more conventional state of mind, then actually it is quite useful to be parental about our minds, to really be looking at like the kinds of thoughts that are going through in my mind, the kind of words that are coming out of my mouth, and the kind of actions that I'm doing, that I'm acting out in the world. And are they flowing from unwholesome roots or wholesome roots? Are they tinged? Basically, the way to think of it is, are my thoughts, words, and actions tinged, tainted by self-centeredness or not? You know, do they come from a small place of the mind or an expanded state of mind? And to be able to assess the situation very quickly and to kind of maintain this ongoing supervision, just like a mom or dad if the kid, if you were with your kid, if you have a kid or whatever, your niece or nephew, and you were taking them to some park or some place, you know, you would provide ongoing supervision. You just wouldn't say, okay, I'll see you, I'll pick you up in three hours, and, you know, to the four-year-old. Have fun, be careful, 
No, you'd be really there, you know, watching them. Maybe not interfering, but you'd be hovering. You wouldn't turn your attention, your gaze away from them for very long, especially for a young child. And it's exactly the same. When our mind is in an, in an immature place, you know, and it's not that it's always in that place. Sometimes our mind is our, our mind is really balanced and wise, but other times our mind is in an immature place, and it requires supervision. And then to somehow want our mind to be sort of wiser than it is doesn't help. When our mind needs supervision, we have every incentive to provide the supervision. But when our mind doesn't need supervision, then we should understand this mind right now doesn't need supervision and to kind of project this parental energy is actually uh, disrupting the practice, is disrupting being skillful in that moment. So the, the man asks the Buddha, and what are the qualities that lead to the culmination of right speech, right thought, right action? What is the mechanism, what is the cause for not acting, speaking, thinking out of greed, aversion, confusion, or self-centeredness. And the Buddha's answered, and this is what I want to spend a little time talking about and then checking in with you folks about what you've learned in your lives. This is where guarding the senses comes in. The Buddha's response was restraint of the senses, or sometimes translated as guarding the sense gates. And then the Buddha asks himself a question. And how does one restrain, how does restraint of the senses when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of the three courses of right conduct? There is a case where a practitioner on seeing a pleasant form with the eye does not hanker after it, does not delight in it, does not give rise to passion for it. Unmoved in body, unmoved in mind, he or she is inwardly well-composed, well-released. And same with an unpleasant form. Same with hearing a pleasant or unpleasant sound, or seeing a pleasant, unpleasant sight, or touching, having a pleasant or unpleasant tactile experience, or taste, or smell. So through all of the six sense gates, the sense gate of the mind, so having a pleasant or unpleasant thought, and then the five physical senses, pleasant and unpleasant sound, taste, touch, smell, whatever else I'm missing there. Doesn't hanker after it, doesn't delight in it, does not give rise to passion for it, unmoved in body, unmoved in mind. One is inwardly well composed, well released. So this is what it means. So when the Buddha talks about restraint of the senses, or guarding the senses, he doesn't mean putting ourselves in a box so we don't see anything, we don't think anything, we don't hear anything, we don't touch anything. You know, like when your parent used to take you shopping, you know, when you were a little kid, don't touch! <laughs> you know, or I sometimes mention how in our family, you know, the living room was off limits. You don't go in the living room, or if you have to go in the living room, you don't touch anything and you walk on the plastic runner, you know? And you don't sit on the furniture unless the cover is there. And that's how it was in our family. And that's, you know, that's the, uh, you know, the feeling. But that's not what the Buddha's ta talking about. Because otherwise, you know, 
then the appropriate strategy would be like, well, we just don't look, you know, keep our eyes closed, keep our ears plugged, don't touch anything. I mean, nobody is teaching that way. That's not the instruction we're given. It's really about the use of wisdom. What we're bringing to the moment, to our sense experience, to our thoughts and the five physical sense experiences, is wisdom. So we're, we're requiring, this is the supervision piece, that parental energy is the wisdom. It's the wisdom that understands that this mind is capable of obsessing. Like when this mind smells something pleasant, sees something pleasant, hears something pleasant, thinks about something pleasant, you know, tastes or whatever else I'm missing there, touches something pleasant, it's going to hanker after it. It's going to take delight in it. Even the thought, you know, even the thought of going on a vacation, even though it's just a thought, it's not the actual vacation, we hanker after it, we delight in it, we lose our composure. Oh, if only. Or the same thing with an unpleasant. It's like, oh, I don't want that. We lose our composure. The mind gets entangled. We start to suffer. So because we care about ourselves, it's this parental energy, you know, we always get confused about this because, you know, a lot of our parents are as confused in life as we are confused in life. So they weren't necessarily good parents all the time, or even very often. But here I'm talking about a good parent, you know, a parent with some wisdom. This is the kind of supervision we bring to the mind. It's the supervisory action comes out of compassion. We're trying to take care of ourselves. So that wisdom that's watching, that's observing, that's present. So when we see something that's pleasant or unpleasant or think about something that's pleasant or unpleasant, there is the presence of wisdom knowing, oh, I'm seeing something pleasant. I'm thinking something unpleasant. Be careful. Be careful to lose your composure. Notice if you start to lose your composure. Notice if you start to delight. Delight means you're kind of relishing. It's like, it's not enough to see something beautiful, a beautiful sunset. But the mind kind of gets active. It wants it to last. Oh, oh, oh it's going too low. I've got to you know, move over here because that tree's in the way, you know. And then we start thinking, God, you know, I need to get a house on a hillside so I can, you know, with no trees on the west side. So, and even in the midsummer when the sun is setting northwest, you know, I want, I need that exposure and I need the, you know, I need the southwest so I get the December sunsets too and, and it doesn't end. This, this kind of uh, tightness and entangling quality in our mind. So this is why we need supervision. Now, this supervisory action arises, the, the skill of this mind, this parental mind, is based on having seen ourselves get entangled hundreds of thousands of times. So it's not like we don't know where this mental whatever kind of activity is going to lead. This is precisely where that wisdom, that parental wisdom comes out of. Been here, done this hundreds of thousands of times. I don't need to pursue this line of thought. I don't need to hanker after this. I mean, how many attractive people 
do we have to see and kind of concoct fantasies or just kind of dwell on the, the thoughts about that person or the sights, images of that person or whatever. It's like, it's a kind of self-torture. I mean, when we're lost in the, that kind of uh, delighting and intoxication, it feels, you know, it can feel enlivening. But if we take a wider, deeper look at it, it really is torturous to be thinking in this way. Same thing about the things we're afraid of or the things we don't like. It's torturous to keep revisiting things that are painful to us. If we're not bringing, excuse me, if we're not bringing wisdom to the reflection, then we're basically just repeating afflictive mind states, fueling them with particular sights, particular sounds, particular images in the mind or thoughts in the mind. And we're trapped in that suffering. So in the, the more broad theme of renunciation, one aspect of renunciation, this, this uh, parami that we've been talking about the last three or four weeks, is understanding this parental energy in the mind. The word in Buddhism is hiri otapa, wholesome fear, wholesome concern, wholesome regret. Like, we care about our mind. And, and we're the only, you know, wisdom is the only thing that can take care of our mind. It's the only thing. Nobody else can really help us. I mean, people can help us in the sense of helping us remember that we have this capacity to supervise our mind in a skillful way. This is not self-hatred. I'm not talking about self-hatred or self-judgment. I'm talking about compassion. And a compassion that leads to this skillful vigilance. So when the mind is in a more dense or conventional state, then we want to be full of care. Okay, be careful. You're going to be around that person. That person tends to trigger a lot of unskillful thoughts, which triggers unskillful words, which triggers unskillful actions, you know? And you don't get, we don't get too far if we're caught up in unskillful thoughts, words, and actions. We tend to dig our hole deeper. Because then, when we're, when we're engaging in unskillful thoughts, words, and actions, life gets heavy. You know, the world basically uh, gives us important feedback, which is what we call suffering. You know, people hate us, people mistrust us. The world doesn't work so well when we're acting unskillfully, thinking unskillfully, speaking unskillfully. And because of that added pain then, it's harder to bring up, to sort of generate this wholesome parental energy, guarding the senses, minding the doors, the doors of awareness, like what we're seeing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling tact tact tactically, tactically and smelling and tasting, all the ways we know our world, to be right there, to be attentive, not to fall asleep. You know how it is, how we can catch ourselves kind of going down a road, you know, maybe even a few feet down that road, kind of obsessing or imagining or dwelling, you know, in some dark place. And then we catch ourselves, we go, honey, 
You don't need to go there. You don't want to go there. This isn't helping anybody. And we pick up the attention, so to speak, and we put it somewhere else. We don't let it go there. Now, when we have those seven factors of awakening nicely balanced, then we don't need to be afraid of even those dark corners. Because the balance of, in the mind is so profound, so uh, resilient in a sense, that it can see everything and be released. Clear seeing and release. That's the fruit of that kind of balance. Confidence that every conditioned state can be open to. No matter what arises in our field of experience, that we don't need to be afraid of it, we don't need to be attached to it. We can be intimate, we can respond skillfully with a heart released, a heart not dependent on the particular condition. So that our action, our response to whatever's going on in our life isn't dependent on us getting something out of that moment. It's a free gift, really. We're responding based on what's appropriate for all beings, not on our sort of attempt to manipulate the situation because we feel needy or we're afraid of some outcome. You hear these stories all the time, and we're always so impressed when we hear about a mother sacrificing herself or a soldier sacrificing him or herself for another person. Or, But this is this place, you know, where people at times, obviously it's not necessarily common, but people, there are stories, you know, we all know situations where we ourselves or other people have done something remarkable because the response in the moment wasn't some attempt to get something for ourselves, but it was just a natural and beautiful response to the situation because there was clear seeing and the heart was released from greed, from aversion, from fear. So then the only thing that was left was to respond in a natural, compassionate way. So I just want to finish reading this uh, passage or this talk the Buddha gave. Unmoved in body, unmoved in mind, one is inwardly well composed, well released. This is how uh, restraint of the senses, when developed and pursued, leads to the culmination of the three courses of right conduct. Right conduct leading to mindfulness, mindfulness leading to the balance of these factors of awakening, and the factors of awakening leading to um, the reward of clear knowing and release. So I'm going to leave it here so that we have more time to check in about this and to ask questions just in terms of what I'm calling guarding the senses or restraining the mind or this parental energy. It would be nice to hear from people about how you've noticed this manifest now different places in your life where you see that manifesting skillfully. Maybe you see it manifesting where it's not so skillful. Um, and any questions that you have about what I said tonight. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Uh, lately I've had occasions where I've had craving arise and the way I've dealt with it is kind of a two-step process. I've looked more deeply at well, if I get what I want, 
what's how am I how is my life better or worse? Why should I feel bad about myself if I don't get what I want? And that's helped me to relax with it and maybe let go of it and wait for something else to arise. Yeah. But, and sometimes that works, but oftentimes I just go back to that habit energy of working out whatever craving that is. Uh, the piece that you mentioned that I'm, I'm sort of intrigued with is when I notice that craving and I go to, well, why is my life better if I get it or why is mm -hmm. my life worse if I don't? That's a good point, it seems to me, to maybe redirect the mind. I'm just not quite sure where I would redirect it at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, you bring up a lot of good things. and. So in that place of that parental energy, this is a place where skillful thought can be really useful. So we're combining mindfulness, a sense of presence with what's going on in the mind with strategic skillful thoughts that help to redirect the mind. So for example, when there's something that's, uh, that triggers craving in the mind, like we want something, we want to spend money. And uh, so, the pull of that thing that's attracting the mind is to like look at it, whatever it is, whether we're looking at it in our mind, something we saw in the catalog, or a car that we want, or I was talking to somebody recently who just got laid off, and uh, he, he mentioned that all he can think of is a car he wants to buy. He has a car, works fine, he doesn't have a job, it's the last thing he should be doing is thinking about the car. But he said, you know, I know exactly which car, I know the color, I know the features I want, I know, you know, I know where to get it, you know, I know who's selling it for the cheapest. And his mind is just sort of obsessing. So the way the parental energy can uh, intercept or interfere or kind of uh, break this addiction, this obsession, is to sort of like, uh, bring in some other information. So where it's like it's inserting some information, like you don't really have the money. This is not the time to go into debt. You've got kids in high school that need to go to college, you know, or whatever. You know, it's like bringing in more information because part of the obsession and the force of the craving depends on not seeing the whole picture. I mean, this is a thing with all suffering states. Now this, you, can, you don't have to believe this, but just use this as a possibility. All suffering states of mind are dependent on not seeing the whole picture. So just as a hypothetical, or as a possibility, if your mind were to open to the whole picture, see things from all angles equally, then the contraction, the entanglement would unravel would release, the mind-heart would release. So in the particular story of, you know, obsessing about buying a car when, in a sense, it's not the right thing to do, it's like, well, if it's not the right thing to do, it just means that there's some information that's being missed in the act of obsessing. So how can you insert that? Now, when you insert the information, when you like remember, oh my God, I've got two kids in high school and they need to go to college or something like that, or I don't have a job, so you know, this is not the time to go into debt. Or another way to kind of interrupt the obsession is to remember that, well, I, you know, as much as, as attractive as this is, 
it too will eventually be unattractive, whatever it is, whether it's an attraction to a person or to a car or to a vacation, it's like it will last for a while and then it won't be so appealing after a while. Impermanence really helps to interrupt the obsessions with craving. So just, and there are, very, you know, there are various ways to bring up the reflection on impermanence, not just one way. But to somehow bring in the truth of impermanence, that everything is impermanent, takes away the shine of whatever it is we're attracted to. Now, like you suggested, Greg, uh, interrupting it isn't always enough. It just may give us a, just a foothold of wisdom to then redirect the mind. Because we might bring that up, but it won't be long before the mind then, after sort of being stunned by the truth, you know, like I've got three kids to put through college, or, you know, that car is going to get scratched and get rusty and fall apart, or, you know, that person's going to get old, or whatever the, whatever the mind does to kind of interrupt the obsession. The wisdom comes in, it, it basically disturbs the obsession. You know, that's called clarity. Clarity, this isn't a pleasant state of mind because we were kind of liking the dream. It's just like a dream at night. You know, when you, that dream gets interrupted, we don't like it. Even if it's a nightmare, we kind of want to go back to it. Because it, it's a reality, you know, like don't interrupt my reality, I want to go back. It's the same thing when we're obsessing about something we want or crave. But so we use wisdom, the parent sort of inserts some information, some truth, interrupts, disturbs the obsession. And in that kind of imbalance, so the obsession has sort of lost its balance, its integrity, that's the time to redirect the mind. Honey, maybe you should get involved in this ping pong game. Maybe you should take a walk. Or if you're sitting, maybe you should return to the breath. Connect, sustain attention with the breath. Open your eyes even, if it's a really powerful obsession, and you're sitting doing your meditation practice, then maybe open your eyes for a moment or a couple minutes. Not that you're going to look at anything, but you're just going to open your eyes and open your sense of hearing and just have a sense of the here and now. Because the, the sort of narrowness of the obsession, it's like a vortex, it sort of pulls you in. So just to have a sense of the space of this room, the here and now, can disrupt the kind of seduction of the thought in a sitting practice. But basically, you want a lot of possibilities to redirect your mind. You want to know that there's some different things to do. Like, give your mind something pleasant to pay attention to, but that it's not going to generate a lot of craving, you know? Like I mentioned, take a walk. Go take a pleasant walk. Call a friend. You know, like instead of sitting at home and obsessing in a way that's destructive, why not call a friend and do something relatively wholesome? Go swimming, play tennis. Go play a musical instrument. You know, now it's not as jazzy as fantasizing or obsessing about some resentment. Doesn't have so much self-centered drama or self-centered juice, but it's a lot more wholesome, and it leaves the heart a lot less tangled and burdened at the end of the evening. Thanks, Craig, for bringing that up. Other comments or reflections from your life? Yeah, Dill. Yeah, I think I think one of the ways to look at this is you brought up a couple of words. I think they probably need to be emphasized. One is addiction, right? um, to pleasure or pain. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it's like it's like I eat uh, hot and spicy food, and I get addicted to it. So I can't eat unless it's hot and spicy. Yeah. But at night I have acid reflux. Mm-hmm. Now, what to do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and so 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 what happens is that, like you suggested. One really has to kind of connect the acid reflux with hot and spicy food. <laughs> so yeah. It's been caused because I eat this hot and spicy food, so I need to maybe eat something that tastes good but doesn't cause acid reflux. Yeah. And this is a, exactly like one of those strategies that I mentioned. This is another very potent strategy. The parental voice is just pointing out and then you know people who have teenagers know this it's like when you can't have a conversation with your kid the most you can do the most that they'll listen to maybe if you're lucky is just for you to say something like honey I noticed when I was your age you know that I did this if you're honest and you tell them a real story you know I did this and this happened to me I offer this for your consideration and then you walk out of the room and this is basically what we do for ourselves. You know, honey, I recognize that when I have hot and spicy food at lunch or dinner, at night I can't sleep because I have acid reflux. I offer this for your consideration. Except that you want to say it right when you're ordering your lunch or dinner or deciding what you're cooking. And then you, you step out. Because that parental energy, we can't assume that the parental energy, that wisdom force, can actually control what the mind is going to do. It can't. Because there, there are other forces at work. It's not just the wisdom that's at work. And we don't, it's not going to be helpful for the wisdom to fight with, you know, the, the person that likes hot and spicy food. Then we end up having this internal war and we start to hate ourselves. We hate the wisdom for getting in the way of pleasure. We hate the ignorance for kind of screwing up my life. And it's just, we become kind of neurotic in a way. Mm -hmm. One of the things I learned is that acid reflux can be pretty bad. <laughs> I know that personally. So, so when it gets really, really bad, then you have to change your habits. Yeah. Um, so before it gets too bad, and starts to kill me, I need to do something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, do we want to burn out our esophagus? Right. Because that's what happens. And this is like, uh, this is another thing that our parental voice, the voice of love and wisdom can say to us, honey, you can be the kind of horse that needs to get beaten to death before it does what's right, or you can be the kind of horse that responds to very subtle signals. Which kind of horse do you want to be? It's up to you, because in fact, it is up to us. And you know, so that's, that's what I try to tell myself. But I understand that a lot of powerful learning comes from getting hurt, you know, and I'm sure all of us in different places in our life, it's like when in looking back we realize that I probably wouldn't have learned that lesson unless it hurt really badly. And it did hurt really badly. And that's probably why I learned. That's probably why I don't go there anymore or don't go there as often. Thanks for sharing that really good example. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because I struggle with that. Like, sometimes it's like, wait, am I trying to push this away? Or is this a healthy redirection? 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your name? Thanks, Catherine. Sorry to have to keep asking your name. Someday I'll get it. Well, it's a really good question, and it's why this discourse of the Buddha is really nice, because it gives us a sense that it's not it's not okay to just think we have one practice. We need to have a different practice for each sort of level of density of our mind. So when our mind is really refined, we need to practice in a very refined way. When our mind is more dense or more superficial or more kind of caught in a conventional way of being a person who wants good and wants to get rid of bad, then we need uh, practice at that frequency. And so redirection works when it's coming out of love and wisdom. And it doesn't work when it's coming out of fear or anger um, and uh, aversion or greed to become somebody. Now, it's a fine line because part of wisdom is a wholesome fear. But, you know, it's different, but it can look the same. So we use different words. We call it concern, you know, as opposed to hating ourselves or not wanting to become addicted. But, it, but the concern, you know, what, the reason we use a different word is because we can see that, you know, just like you remember when you were a kid and sometimes your parents said things to you and they were really angry. And, and in that moment, in a sense, they hated you or they hated what you were doing. Other times your parents could have been very, just as loud in terms of what they were saying, but you got the sense that they really had your best interest at heart in what they were saying. And that's the difference. So when we have our best interests at heart, it's really okay at, in moments when it's appropriate to speak with a loud voice, to speak to ourselves with a loud voice, you know, to grab ourselves by the collar or the shirt and kind of shake us, because sometimes that's what we need. Do you see what you're doing? I just want to point out, you did this yesterday and this happened. Two days ago you did this and this happened. Three days ago, you know, kind of like in a really stark way or to tell your friend you know you know don't let me do this now with my mind relatively balanced I'm telling you don't let me do this I want you to take my keys away when I'm about to do this I want you to hang up the phone when I'm doing this you know whatever the particular behavior is you know you can turn to a good friend and really demand that I need your help in this I need you to help me keep from doing this because this is a pattern that's deeply entrenched it's well greased I'm very likely and under the certain circumstances to do this again so I'll be blinded I'm relying on your eyesight your wisdom when I'm blinded no matter how much I want to do this like you know people who are detoxing no matter how much I want another drink don't let me have another drink lock the door so we can do that with ourselves sometimes too but having a, a community of friends who can kind of help hold the wisdom when we lose it can be really useful. That's one of the advantages of a spiritual community. Even though we may not talk to each other in that way, it's just seeing people. You know, it's like our conscience gets triggered just seeing people we practice with a lot. Like we're on better behavior. It's like reminds us, oh yeah. And that person may not actually be mindful in that moment, but we just see them and we just assume they are because they, in our minds, represent the practice. 
And the more you start seeing people here at Common Ground, and then you see them like out at some other place, you'll be reminded, oh yeah, oh yeah, I can be mindful. Is there a community <laughs> uh, We do have a photo board in the, in the community room. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. So I'll get some friends here and then ask for their photos. <laughs> There's a little time left. To, yeah, what's your name? Aaron. Aaron. So it's nice we've got this uh, kind of uh, list of uh, kind of stages in practice, I guess we could say, from this discourse that I mentioned tonight. And so at some point, like when there is some continuity in the mindfulness stage, right? And then if we're, we get some continuity in the mindfulness stage, so we're mindful, generally speaking, moment by moment. It doesn't mean we're mindful of the same thing, breath, 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 but it could be breath, then knowing that thinking is like this, Knowing hearing is like this, breathing in is like this. So there's some continuity in the practice. Then at that level where we're in the present moment, we can really refine that balance. It's like we shift to the next stage of practice. As we're working on that more subtle balance of mind, it just feels good. The, the sort of the kind of sense of being in the moment, <clears throat> feeling alive with energy, because now we're kind of in tune with the energizing and the tranquilizing, well, it's really nice to be both really uh, full of energy and tranquil, even if it's not in perfect balance, you know? And here's the trick. That's a pleasant state. You know, when we start getting some continuity in mindfulness and start working with the more subtle balances, balance of mind, it's really a pleasant, wholesome state of mind. And if we don't notice that pleasantness, what happens, the joy builds, and what do we do when we have a lot of joy? We feel energized. Well, we feel like, well, I can solve problems now. That will be the default use of the joy when we're feeling joyful. So if you're not aware, oh, it's just joy and it's like this, you're going to start planning, you're going to start figuring out your life because you feel like, hey, my mind's clear, I understand things, let me figure this out. Let me, let me, while I'm clear, it's kind of a survival thing, while I'm clear, let me figure everything out because I may never be clear again. I'll get it all in order and I'll have it all done. I mean, it's kind of a neurotic thought, but there's some, it actually makes sense on a superficial level to do that. It is a good time to plan when the mind's relatively balanced and mindful. But we don't want to use that state of mind for that. We want to actually continue with the continuity of awareness. So in that sense, 
we're, the continuity of awareness is breaking down because we're not noticing the joy that's coming because of the continuity. So you want to actually note that, or at least notice, there's joy. There's a sense of joy. There's a sense of energy in the mind. There's a sense of like uh, nimbleness in the mind, like you can creatively figure things out. Without having to figure things out, you want to notice that. And it's okay to appreciate it, but you don't want to indulge it. You don't want to give it something to do. Just allow it to be the way it is. And if anything, you're turning that nimbleness back in on itself. Like you're using the power that's developing, the power of the mind, to know the mind. So you, instead of to know your life and to figure out what you should do, on that level, you're using it to understand the present moment reality of the mind itself getting interested in the mind, in the present moment experience of the mind and heart. And that will, basically what you're doing is you're using that nimbleness, that brightness, to better refine the balance. Too much energy, too much tranquility, how about just getting that balance just right. And, and it's really a very refined look at uh, happiness because that wonderful balance is a more refined state of happiness and when it's out of balance it still may be really nice relative to our daily life but it could be nicer so we're just we're using a sense of ease and stillness peace in the mind to help bring the mind that's our barometer for bringing the balance uh, to cultivating the balance in the mind and all we're doing then is hanging out in that very refined still balanced state because it's the proximate cause for insight, for a spiritual awakening. And we're just hanging out there. And it's very hard to hang out there because it's like we've got a Porsche, but we're not driving it. You know, we're just sort of, we just know. We've got like all the money in the world, all the fun toys in the world, but we're just sort of letting them be. We're not taking them out and playing with them. And that's not so easy. You know, we want to indulge in the power of the mind, in the kind of stillness in the mind. But we're learning just to be there in the potential, but not acting on the potential. So it takes, it takes a lot, it's actually, it takes more skill to learn how to handle the subtle pleasantness of the mind than it does the skill to learn how to handle the difficult states of mind. Because it's so seductive when the mind gets more refined. And uh, we have to leave it here. Sorry, T. Bring it back next week if you can, if you can remember. Let's just take a moment and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.